Hello, welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. I'm your host, John Cribbs, and this is the October episode of our genre book podcast. Uh, you are finding me at my best. Um, any excuse to watch horror films and read horror fiction, uh, this is why I love October. And I always insist that we have a horror fiction themed episode for that month. So by way of introduction, I'm actually going to ask today's guest, Rebecca Bauman, as someone who lives and breathes horror fiction throughout the year, is there something about October for you that makes it feel more essential or is it just another month? It's not just another month. It is amping up everything that I love and do all year. Uh, My wife and I always use this as an excuse to watch horror films daily instead of weekly. And for me, the weather is huge. I live in Indiana and there's not a ton of great things I can say about living in Indiana, but the actual, you know, beautiful fall trees are one of them. And I've been walking in graveyards, looking at leaves, and just absolutely gorging myself on ghost stories. So it's October country is is very special to me. I'm so glad to hear that. You've got it figured out. I only lived in Indiana for a little under two years. I lived in Fishers, but I do remember that the falls there were gorgeous. They're spectacular. Uh, surprisingly, for Middle America, was really amazing. So I'm glad to hear that. Uh, Rebecca Bauman is head of public services at Lilly Library at Indiana University, Bloomington, the home of hundreds of thousands of rare books and manuscripts, where she also teaches multiple courses. Uh, honestly, I um, feel that we could spend hours talking about everything that you do at Lilly Library or about your own personal collection of crime, science fiction, horror, and what I believe you refer to as smut paperbacks. Um, but I don't want to get, I don't want to get way down to that. I want to get into our topic. Uh, I will recommend though, uh, that everybody check out her Twitter feed, uh, at, at Arkham, Arkham librarian, uh, which is always sharing just amazing images of rare books, gorgeous artwork and book design, cool biographies of writers. Uh, so at Arkham librarian, do you ever fantasize that Indiana university is actually Miskatonic university? Well, I, I do my best to uh, get it as close as I can. I I think the closest thing that we have, we do have a really nice little collection of papers, uh, letters to and from Alistair Crowley, whose birthday it is today, by the way. Um, happy birthday, so, Alistair. Happy birthday, Alistair, yeah. And that has over the years, you know, people come in to look at it and they kind of make some comments about like, well, you're not really going to let me see the secret grimoires, right? You know? Um, so yeah, try to make it as spooky as possible, adds horror to the collections when I can. We've got some amazing stuff in that area. So we're so literally yeah. leaving like they might've been cursed for looking at this ancient <laughs> home that you've just given them uh, permission to see. Yes. And we, we have done one of my favorite kind of outreach events that we did uh we've done a book seance a couple of times where we get out some of the like creepy weird stuff in the collections and you know pretend like we're channeling the spirits of the books that's been really fun for halloween oh wow (laughs) that's excellent one other thing i did want to mention just briefly talk about briefly was something you did in 2018 for the 200th anniversary of mary shelley's frankenstein you curated an incredible exhibit called frankenstein 200 the 
Birth, Life, and Resurrection of Mary Shelley's Monster, which featured not only editions of Shelley's novel, but books that influenced and were subsequently influenced by the story of Frankenstein. Uh, lots of rare editions, correct? Yes, and that was really centered around and inspired by our stunning, stunning first edition in original boards of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein that is in splendid condition. And I wanted to kind of show all of the different things that went into the making of that book, the influences that Mary had, her parents, her friends who were with her in Geneva, and then also show where it went from there, all of the things that were inspired by Frankenstein. So that was very fun for the bicentennial of that novel. I'm so bummed I did not get to see it. Pink Smoke friend and frequent guest uh, Bill Tech did get to see it in person, and I envy him for it. Um, but for those like me who missed it, Rebecca wrote a book of the same name, which catalogs everything in the ex in the exhibit and uh, includes, of course, fascinating text about each book's history and the, its connection to Frankenstein. Um, I, I like to bring it up especially because the very first genre book episode we did was in October. Uh, two years, two or three years ago, and it was on Frankenstein's Tower by Jean-Claude Carrier, which he had written in the 50s under a uh, pen name. I think it was Benoit Becker, uh, which he had introduced a uh, new new incarnation of Frankenstein's monster called Goral. And uh, he had kind of written that as a young student, so it was kind of an interesting connection to the man who would go on to co-write all Louis Bunuel's French films and uh, just prolifically many, many other great screenplays. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, of all the iterations of Frankenstein over the years, not just straight up adaptations, but just in terms of influence, movies, books, everything, which one is your favorite other than the original novel, of course? I mean, if, if I'm totally honest, like I can't lie, Bride of Frankenstein is my, that's such a like boring answer because it's so obvious, but it, I mean, it's my favorite because I love... I'm always looking for female monsters. There aren't enough female monsters. Um, but I will mention as, as one that I, I love quite a bit that I think not as many people are familiar with the comic book version of Frankenstein. And there's two versions that he did done by Dick Briefer in the 1940s, um, which really was kind of the first horror comic was his version of Frankenstein. And he started with the monster being just absolutely terrifying like first issue he's ripping people in half you know in these like really early comic books um very mean monster but so beautifully and sympathetically drawn and then he did a 180 and made him this like adorable cute he's called the merry monster he has this little tiny like snub nose way up high on his forehead and this like group of monster friends and it's it's so sweet and endearing and then it ended up going back he went back to the scary version when horror comics kind of went back in fashion so those are definitely looking uh worth looking into and they've most of them have been republished by PS Publishing, and they're just really dynamic. And Briefer was um, ended up being blacklisted by the comic industry. He did some comics for some communist uh, workers' uh, publications. So he was a victim of that kind of um, red scare in the 50s. So he's an interesting guy, and I that's a, a lesser-known iteration of the monster that I really enjoy. 
that had to have given him sort of a sympathy to the monster in a way, kind of being ostracized. Very much. In yeah. The publishing. Yeah. He is kind of a, he's kind of a working class monster. He's really lovable. <laughs> Those are both great answers. I, I love how Bride of Frankenstein cast Elsa Lancaster as Mary Shelley as well to kind of make that extra connection between, you know, the creator of this and the female iteration of the monster. There's a lot to love about that. So thank you, Rebecca. Without further ado, uh, let's uh, introduce what we're going to be talking about here. I reached out to you and asked what you'd uh, be interested in. And by wonderful coincidence, you uh, were researching two excellent books that you um, uh, propose that we talk about. They are two books by the great Fritz Lieber, uh, Conjure Wife, which was originally published in Unknown Worlds in April of 1943, and then published as a standalone novel in 1953. And Our Lady of Darkness, which began serialized in a shorter form under the title The Pale Brown Thing, and then expanded and published as a novel in 1977. Both books have been collected together under the umbrella title Dark Ladies, which I guess makes sense. But you've written about these books uh, for a new article. It's going to be in an upcoming issue of uh, Hellborn. Is that what it's called? Hellborzine? Hellebore, Hellebore, which is a, a name of a, a flower. And it's a it's a great zine. This is its third issue, and uh, full horror. Um, so focuses on fiction, but also on you know actual British folkways, uh, witchcraft. This upcoming issue is the Malefice issue, which will be out in time for Salon. Uh, so it focuses on witchcraft vis-a-vis sort of methods of power and control. So it should be very interesting. Very cool. We'll make sure to uh, include a link to both that and the Frankenstein book on our website. Um, and I want to ask you about Lieber, but I think the first thing I should ask, just a good way to start would be, what do you think of when you hear someone say weird fiction? Oh my gosh. I I love and hate that question. Um, <laughs> it's because a big question. <laughs> it is a big question. And yeah. I... I am, uh, before I was a librarian, I was uh, a PhD student, and I was at one point working on a dissertation that was in part trying to define weird fiction. Um, So I guess I I hate that question because I'm like, oh my God, I never finished this. I never really um, had my say about it. And I spent so many years thinking about it, and it's a difficult question so many people define it in different ways. I think it's in some ways a harder genre to define than others. I think to me, weird fiction is really defined by affect, how it makes you feel. It's not necessarily um, elements of writing or content, but do you feel this kind of deep sense of unease? Like the, like the universe is not what you thought it was. Um, And the best example I have for that, uh, uh, I think one of the great, great, great texts of weird fiction is Moby Dick, uh, which is, yeah, generally not thought of as, you know, a horror or weird novel, but there are all of these passages about kind of like the, the universe is just this pasteboard mask. And if you look behind it, you know, everything is, is unsettled. Nothing is certain. Everything is sort of at sea. Um, And there's no clear morality, there's no clear good and evil. So if you think about, I mean, obviously, 
kind of the traditional weird fiction is is Lovecraft and this idea of cosmic horror and there are these you know malevolent entities that are incomprehensible and do not wish us well but that can that can manifest in a lot more subtle ways so I to me the weird is is a big umbrella it can show up in unexpected places and certainly uh, Liber falls into that category and in much of his work, including both of these novels that just kind of challenge your sense of stability, of reality, and sense of what anything means. So they're, they're unsettling. The world is not what you thought it was. Right. More or less. Wow, that really opens it up even more than I previously <laughs> thought. It's even more ambiguous now. Um, but that's fine. Sorry to drop that hard question on you. But I wanted to ask because obviously these two novels and a lot of Lieber's other work uh, are considered weird fiction, even though he is kind of claimed by several different corners of literature. The sword and sorcery people obviously know him for his, um, I'm going to mispronounce this too, but Fefred and uh, Grey Mauser series, which spanned four decades. Uh, he's, uh, just written so many different, in so many different genres, been, uh, awarded in so many different ones, but in terms of weird fiction and horror, uh, he seems to be, um, most recognized as someone who brought ancient horror tropes into modern cities, right? Into modern life. He's got stories like the girl with the hungry eyes, which is, uh, the vampire as an empowerment of how consumer desire sucks the life out of people or smoke ghost, which uh, contemporized the idea of the specter as something created from the fumes and the exhaust of cities. Uh, and these two books, I think, which are 24 years apart, we should mention, I mean, there's, you know, a big space of writing that happens between these two books, but are sort of connected by this idea of old ideas um, that have recurred now into modern life or become almost a symptom of modern life. Is that somewhat close to, uh, <laughs> am I getting more or less close to it? Yeah, absolutely. So many of my comments are going to end in question marks here. I'm just going <laughs> to defer to the expert on all of these. Yeah. I, and I, I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a library expert. I, I have always enjoyed his work and I've read, you know, I've read the sword and sorcery and he's got some great science fiction stuff. I, and conjure wife has always been my favorite. That's the one I've read many times and have been kind of obsessed with the film versions as well, because I love stories about witchcraft. And it's just been recently that I've wanted to learn a little bit more about him and started reading a lot more of his short fiction, which is really good. I mean, he was, he was a great short story writer. And I think, as you said, really excelled in that, um, um, bringing horror into the contemporary modern world, especially with cities. In that regard, he reminds me a lot of one of my other favorite weird writers, Arthur Macon, the late 19th century writer of the great god Pan, who had this theory uh, that if you wander around a city for long enough and you are open-minded, something weird will happen to you and like time and space will start to slip and slide. And I love that idea. And I, I feel like Liber bought into that, especially in, as I'm sure we'll talk about Our Lady of Darkness, that cities themselves have this potential energy and magic that can, you can tap into. Yeah. And I, don't know if this is more something that had kind of already been going on with Lovecraft and earlier writers, but um, 
Liber seems like someone too in the 40s and 50s being ahead of his time in that horror stories at that point were what the, the characters they journey beyond their borders right they go to an island or to a dark castle or a haunted mansion uh somewhere exotic and just remote an isolated country basically and with conjure wife uh he brings horror home right he says that the new trend of domestic horror is that you know these things can happen in your kitchen you know they can happen within your marriage uh and that seems huge to me when you think about the 70s being the big horror fiction boom between Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, The Other, all these domestic horror books uh, coming out and making it a uh, more relatable genre, you know, for kind of the everyday person. So if Lieber is sort of the forebearer of that, then I think that it's he's, he's huge within the horror community for that reason. Yeah, absolutely. I, and uh, allegedly Conjure Wife was partially inspired by a comment that John W. Campbell made saying like I bet that most women have all the ingredients of witchcraft in their handbags these days which is a great comment and that's yeah I hadn't really thought of it that way but that's an interesting question like what what is the first domestic horror story I'm gonna have to like think about that but certainly this is this is early and before it really you know, as you said, Rosemary's Baby, the late 60s kind of boom, um, you know, the apartment. Um, the household, I mean, just within the family, you know, that yeah. something already exists inside of your safety net, you know, <laughs> that uh, you don't have to go out somewhere to meet a monster. It could already be brewing in your basement, literally. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah, I, I don't know either. <laughs> I didn't do enough research to see what the first one was, but it feels like Libra at least was, if not in front of the game, right on top of it, you know, with these books. Um, so before we get into Conjure Wife, and we'll kind of tackle both these books uh, one at a time, uh, we always do an aperitif, a uh, artwork that we think would be a good thing to ingest before you go into the book. And I'm going to ask you first, Rebecca, what would you recommend people engage with before they read Conjure Wife? Okay, so this is, I think, a perfect aperitif in that it is quite light and delightful. Um, the 1942 film directed by Renee Claire, I Married a Witch, yes. with <laughs> Frederick March and yeah, uh, Veronica Lake as the you know very petite, beautiful blonde witch that is very much the prototype of Samantha and Bewitched and many, many other versions of kind of the the sexy witch that we get in the 20th century. And this movie, it's based, I, I just recently for this article that I wrote, I read based on, uh, was published posthumously and completed by someone else. And the book is also a comedy, but it's a lot darker than the film. But both of them really have this idea of this kind of mischievous witch wife who has ultimately to make a choice between the love of a man and her powers. So in the case of I Married a Witch, Veronica Lake character, Jennifer, she's she's quite bad. Uh, she and her father are just going around, you know, they're, they're evil, they're witches, they're terrible. Um, but when she falls in love with a mortal man, of course, she's going to give up all that uh, sort of mischievous energy and at least in theory, settle down. So that 
that kind of sets the stage for this whole sequence of 20th century stories of which I think Conjure Wife, which was written just in one year after um, that film, uh, is definitely part of that trajectory. In the character's defense, they are initially getting revenge on the Puritans right. who burned That's them right. to death. Yes, yes. Uh, so there is that at least on the the uh, ancestors of the Puritans who burned them to death. Uh, another kind of cool Lieber connection is um, they first appear as smoke, like his smoke monster. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that's a perfect, yeah, I agree, a perfect parity for this novel. Um, uh, I was reading about it recently too because um, obviously with Veronica Lake in there and it's so smart and funny. It has such a Preston Sturgis kind of uh, flavor to it. I was surprised to learn he was actually heavily involved in it until he and Renee Claire kind of had a little fisticuffs and he got kicked off the production. Uh, but it was his idea, though, to bring Veronica Lake in to make it a vehicle for her. Uh, and certainly his hand is in the screenplay, if you know, um, which went through, I think, many hands. But uh, you definitely hear his voice in there. So excellent choice. Um, my aperitif is a very, very short story by Frederick Brown called Naturally uh, from 1954. This is literally a one-page story. It's something like eight paragraphs long, um, and it's actually a joke, so I can't really talk about it too much without spoiling the punchline, but it's about a kid named uh, Henry Bloggett who invokes a demon to help with his math homework. Uh, that's the entire setup, and it's over very quickly. Uh, and it was adapted uh, by Guillermo del Toro for his 1987 film Geometria, which I've never seen, actually. Um, but like on your wife... It's a story of black magic utilized in modern setting. And it deals with education, specifically a bad student, like one of the side characters in uh, Lieber's novel. And it's also about math and math plays into conjure wife, which, you know, in an interesting way that we'll end up talking about, I'm sure. So uh, literally you have no excuse not to take two minutes of your time to sit down and read Frederick Brown's naturally uh, would be a good thing to do before you get into conjure wife. That's a great choice. I've, I've had a very, like, Frederick Brown year. I've just been obsessed with him this whole year, and I keep going back to him. So that's that's a nice coincidence. Yeah, love him. And like Liebery, somebody who had, you know, all sorts of genre, any genre he could pretty much tackle and make it just so memorably strange and fun. So Frederick Brown, yeah, the greatest. Um and I just found out too, I should mention The Conjure Wife was covered by my favorite book podcast, which is Bad Books for Bad People. Um, I don't know if you've heard it, Rebecca, but it's uh, hosted by Tenebris Kate and Jack Gignol. Um, it was an episode from like a year ago, and I, I've been saving it for a rainy day. So you choosing Lieber as a subject of this episode was just the perfect excuse to revisit these novels. And after we're finished talking about it, I'm going to dive into that Bad Books for Bad People episode. Um, but Conjure Wife, uh, just in terms of plot, is the story of Tansy Sailor her cat Totem, and her husband Norman. Norman is a distinguished ethnologist and a professor of sociology at Hepnell College. Uh, he's a guy who loves to jump in and set a student straight by pointing out that ancient superstitions still exist, all our rituals of fraternities and how marriage is an ancient custom that we still adhere to and how he sees modern society as quote-unquote anthropoid apes inhabiting nightclubs and battleships. But he himself has no open mind, which we learn straight off the bat when he discovers that Tansy has been casting spells planting charms and setting up magical protections around her husband, uh, which not only bolster his success, but it turns out to protect him from hexes aimed at him from wives of his fellow professors. 
So the first thing I want to ask you, Rebecca, as someone who is immersed in the world of academia and college education, how much is Lieber embellishing these power dynamics without getting too personal? Are these collegiate rivalries really so cutthroat these days? Honestly, I think this is I think it's the main reason why I love this novel and why so many people love this novel, because anyone who has been in academia as a student, as a faculty member as staff is definitely going to recognize some of the power struggles, power dynamics, and the thesis that, you know, these male academics are only successful because their faculty wives are doing witchcraft behind their backs and against each other is just such a compelling and interesting idea. I mean, I think for the time it was published and Liber was, he did teach at a college for a few years. So he had been involved in this world. I suspect strongly that for that time, this was very, very accurate in terms of faculty wives sacrificing a lot of, of their time, of their energy, um, to create and kind of bolster the social networks that these male academics depended on. Even now, um, aside from the gender politics, I think this idea of, you know, backstabbing, um, cutthroat world is has a lot of resonance and is part of the reason why this story has been filmed three times. It's I don't think it's ever gone out of print. It's always compelling to people. So yeah, the academic setting, if you have been in that world at all, um, you will chuckle quite a bit at some of the things that happen and the hypocrisy, you know, Norman is, he's kind of a, he's kind of a blowhard. He's so full of himself <laughs> and he just, he knows everything and he's so confident that he's not going to get in trouble for having partied with his theater friends and had, he's kind of promoting this frank and free sexuality in his classrooms. And of course, the only reason he doesn't get in trouble is because Tansy is protecting him. So when, yeah, yeah, <laughs> when he makes her stop, it it falls apart really fast. And you know, we kind of get an early Me Too story because he's got a female student who accuses him immediately of having come on to her. Of course, since he's our hero, he really hasn't. Um, but she accuses him of that. There's a male student who accuses him of being against him and giving him a low grade just because he doesn't like him. So I think all of that stuff is still really relevant. Definitely. And not, I mean, I think more so to, you know, ed education faculties, but also to pretty much anything, right? Pretty much anything that's an organization that Lieber kind of presents this as the new institution, right? The kind of thing where backstabbing and everything is just sort of something that happens behind all of the high balls and the bridge games that are pretty much all anyone is, all these guys are good for. Um, but it, it gives it that kind of dark comedy that you kind of enjoy the ridiculousness of these, these guys. And the whole perspective of the novel is through Norman. It's almost like we're seeing a story behind a curtain, you know, where these uh, mechanizations and this witchcraft and the occult is happening in the background. And we don't see those things happening. We only see 
what happens to him. We see things, ridiculous things like him cutting himself, you know, when he's shaving the next day after he throws out all of Tansy's things. And uh, as you pointed out, the, um, because he thinks he's this, you know, kind of bohemian kind of hotshot professor, you know, kind of new age professor uh, there to wow the students. And I think, you know, going to New York and seeing this kind of risque play, which is probably like what the 1940s version of Stomp or something really makes him feel like he's uh, this, um, this forward thinking kind of guy when in fact he is uh, somebody who's not willing to, you know, open himself up to these experiences and the possibilities of these things that are going on. So if this book was written in 2013, you know, 50 years later, you would just immediately assume, oh, this is, this is a parody of what this kind of guy is like, you know, and his, and the way he treats his wife as this kind of, uh, you know, quiet housewife who is there to, you know, to help him out. Um, but it seems really kind of forward thinking, looking back on it to, um, to realize that, uh, you know, in this time when this was sort of the model for American life, you know, to have this house and have this job that you've worked so hard for and to kind of completely ignore the wife's contribution to these things, it's pretty forward thinking, I think. Yeah, and he he said that writing this book made him more feminist, and he, he used that word. He said, writing Conjure Wife made me more of a feminist because it did really help him think through some of the gender dynamics of his own life and the world that he was in. And I definitely, I do want to talk the, the um, most exciting thing to me in revisiting this novel recently was doing a little bit more research into Liber's wife, Jonquil Stevens Lieber or Liber. And I'm sorry, I like have called him Fritz Lieber for my whole life until like, uh, a month ago in his autobiography, he says it's pronounced Liber. So I, I have I did tried not know to that. So. Yeah, I know. It's, <laughs> it's right driving me you. crazy. It's like makes me feel weird <laughs> saying it that way, but I'm trying. Um, you call him Fritzy from now on. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure he won't mind. But uh, his wife, John Quill, fascinating, fascinating woman, British poet, and she did a lot of this kind of propping up of Fritz early in his career. She is the one who introduced him to H.P. Lovecraft, which was major for him. And she did this by writing Lovecraft a letter through like, like a fan letter through a magazine and put him, put them in touch. And this was very shortly before Lovecraft died. So Liber and Lovecraft only were correspondents for about a year uh, between 1936 and 1937. But that was like one of the most important things um, for his writing career. And she did that. And she was always introducing him to people and sort of supporting him in all of these different ways. So I do think definitely a big part of this novel is working through his relationship with her. It's also important to know that his mother, Virginia Bronson Liber, who was a powerful woman, lived with them at the time. And John Quill and Virginia did not get along. So this whole idea of the young witch wife and then these older faculty wives, uh, the dean of women, Mrs. Carr, right, who's the great villain of the novel, that's totally what was happening in his own life. And I am fascinated with his view of witchcraft where 
every woman practices it, right? Like every woman in this world knows witchcraft and they've kind of learned it secretly a little bit from their mothers, but partly just from experimenting, but they never talk to each other. There's no covens. There's no collaborations. In fact, the collaboration of Mrs. Carr, Mrs. Gunnison, and Mrs. Sawtell, who are the three villains, is presented as being the first of its kind in the history of humans, which is like, really? There have never been any women who have talked to each other before, ever. But when you look at Fritz's own household and sort of the, the dynamics between his young wife who was really struggling uh with she struggled with drug addiction and alcoholism as did Liber himself and this sort of powerful mother she had Jonquil investigated by a PI before they could get married she micromanaged the heck out of Fritz's life you know in terms of like what he could eat his health you know she very much was that kind of overbearing mother stereotype so I it's a really interesting novel as well in terms of an author thinking through like how you know from a male perspective like trying to understand these women engaging with each other in these very negative ways is, all over him. That is really illuminating. Um, especially since Mrs. Carr being the head honcho is sort of the big twist of the novel at the end. She's been the one who's been considered the sort of doting, harmless, uh, I think he calls her the squaw of the tribe, right? The one who's just kind of, you know, helpful and polite, but actually would never do anything malicious like the other uh, uh, faculty wives would. And the idea that that's a surrogate for a, a mother makes a lot of sense now that you meant that you brought it up. Um, but yeah, his, um, his reactions to Tansy's secret, you know, uh, saying that uh, she must've just been fooled by the cussedness of things, which is a really funny kind of uh, stuff shirt sort of way of looking at it and referring to it as her witchcraft complex. Like uh, she's going crazy. Like that's sort of the main thing in the first half of the book is my poor wife is nuts. You know, she's totally lost it. And uh, he kind of holds on to this rationalism for as long as he can. Um, and again, it's, he's not an active protagonist in his own story. He's the one seeing these things, but all this stuff is happening uh, somewhere else. And he is only through her direct, you know, kind of pushing him gets involved and actually comes out and helps her at the end and is able to, to defeat these women. Uh, he is able though, to kind of use what his, his rational sort of uh, devices, science and things like that, uh, mathematics, symbolic logic, psychology and ethnology to kind of help himself transition into this deeper kind of understanding. One of my favorite scenes is when he uh, reduces the existing magic spells to 17 equations in a symbolic language, uh, which Mrs. Carr's husband of all people uh, helps him derive from a master equation. And it's just a really great scene of taking something that is unknowable and kind of applying devices that are familiar to him to kind of making it make sense. And this of course is how he eventually saves Tansy after she's been targeted by the women ultimately. So it has on the one hand, you get infuriated at Norman for, you know, just refusing to bend his beliefs. But when he actually applies those beliefs to this new thing that he's kind of adapting to, you really start rooting for him. You know, he's less of a fuddy duddy and more of a hero at that point. Yeah. And, and I think that, that Liber really 
he's trying to show us like a certain idea of a marriage that is this kind of magical partnership. It's one of the key moments is when Tansy is, it's kind of her last act that she does before she gets taken over. She gets kind of, uh, her soul is, is stolen away so that she's just kind of this walking shell. And before that happens, she makes her husband say, repeat these words, like what's mine is yours, what's yours is mine. It's like this repetition of the wedding vows. And it's because she does that spell right before she's taken away that then Norman is able to act as her agent and what he does actually works because they are united in this marriage. So it seems like Liber is trying to, you know, posit some kind of, you know, union of masculine and feminine, rational and irrational in this very, like, I mean, that's a very reductive stereotypical kind of, um, thing but I think he was he, he was interested in that and we can talk um with Our Lady of Darkness by that point he had gotten like super deep into Jungian psychology um Conjure Wife is before that happened but you can already see him really leaning towards those kind of union of opposites ideas and that is how Tansy and Norman together defeat the evil um it has to be both it has to be both sides Right. She needs his kind of to bring him in his strength to make the union more powerful. Um, she tells him when she's in a trance that there are two sides of women. One is rational and then there's the other who knows, which kind of suggests that men don't have that extra side, uh, don't have that side that's open to some of the powers that they tap into in this. Um, but it, at that point in the story, uh, again, you know, there's been this, as you said, this sort of uh, subplot about the student accusing him, which all the movies love for some reason. They love this small subplot of this uh, woman who's kind of fallen for him and kind of uh, uh, become obsessed with him. Uh, even though uh, to me, it didn't seem like a super important part of the book. Uh, but by the time it gets to, towards the end of the story, when Tansy has taken the curse onto herself and is basically walking off to commit suicide and he has to stop her, you know, break the spell to, to stop her, it becomes incredibly dark. I think the tone really shifts and very well, you know, not like it's a sudden sort of thing. But everything at this point where it's like Norman is afraid he's going to get hit by a truck uh, and he's so happy after the spell's been lifted that his uh, razor blade reacts, behaves perfectly, as he says, uh, then suddenly his wife is uh, really in danger of losing her soul and then being taken over by another woman. And I guess the ultimate, it's maybe a sort of simplistic way to sum it up, but the fact that he recognizes her in the body of another woman shows that by engaging in this other half, this, this side that knows by be opening himself up to this, that he finally recognizes his wife, that he actually sees her as this amazing uh, protective and powerful woman who has uh, bolstered his career as much as, as Liber's wife did. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great way of putting it. That's, that is kind of the takeaway from the story is that Norman finally sees Tansy. He finally sees her for what she is. And, and it is ultimately when she's in someone else's body that he realizes, like, sees her soul for the first time. Um, 
wanted to mention too, since you brought it up, the the this little student subplot, mm. which is true. Yeah, the movies because and I, I you know it's because you've got to have the like cute young co-ed in, in the movies, but the weirdest adaptation it, yeah. <laughs> of this story, which everyone should watch because it's on YouTube, you can just watch it, is the nineteen eighty adaptation witch's brew which is horrible um but <laughs> also like, known as which witch is which <laughs> yes it's like horrible in like the most super enjoying enjoying uh, way possible um and it has terry gar in it who i love but like she is not at the top of her game in this film and in that one one of their kind of clever things is to reverse the genders of the students who accuse Norman. So you've got a gay male student accusing him of sexual harassment. And then you've got this like tough female student who accuses him of giving her a bad grade and then climbs up like on the clock tower with her rifle. It's absurd. Um, but it seems like such a tasteless idea. Like, well, Charles Whitman did it at a university. (laughs) Yes. yes. It's clearly like totally building on that cultural moment. And, um, (laughs) it's weird as hell, but it is also that, the that 1980, version is the only film version that does the soul swap where uh the tansy character and the flora car character who's played by who plays her lana turner oh lana turner that's right and it was you know kind of aging grand dame Mm -hmm. and yeah it's so it's 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 pretty interesting it's it's worth a look the the lana turner when she is acting as terry gar is amazing i think that's one of the like few yes. highlights is she acts exactly like, like terry gar just kind of acts like she's sadder but holy shit lana turner who's just been kind of sitting back dignified throughout the whole movie is suddenly turns into terry gar and she looks 20 years younger it's really kind of amazing uh and then also has a very small appearance by angus scrim which is, you know, a fun thing to, to note. Um, you can yell boy at your screen when he comes on. <laughs> and I do every time. Um, yeah. And I want to talk about the other two movies too, but before uh, we get back to that, let me just point out some of the kind of cool sort of scary stuff, like traditionally scary stuff that happens. You've got the, the estuary dragon, the cement dragon at the university that, that moves when he's not looking, which is seems like it must've influenced uh, the Shining, right? The Topiary Animals in The Shining or uh, the Doctor Who episode Blink with the weeping angels that move when you're not looking at them. So that's kind of a, kind of a sort of classic thing that's pretty creepy that's going on around it. And then, of course, just all of his, um, just the impression of him falling under the spell when they say um, he's, experience, you know, he's experiencing things like, uh, he says, suddenly the sunlight was colder than ice. The roofs of Hepno were like roofs of hell and the faint laughter, like the crystalline uh, cachinations of fiends, uh, just a great sort of like environment set up where, uh, as they say, he is flicked like a psychic filament, you know, like he just, he's just, go- he's just off, you know, and everything to him seems so suddenly sinister. Uh, and this, this demon call- that they call he who walks behind is suddenly, uh, you know, overshadowing both of them. And, um, and he realizes that these natural misfortunes and antagonisms are in fact active malign witchcraft that have been directed against him. So, even with the kind of fun stuff that's happening, it does it does build up these very kind of cool dark images that uh, Liber is just so very good at. Yeah, and I think that's one thing that's great to point out because if you've only seen film versions, you wouldn't realize how. And it's it's 
if you were just talking about the story on the surface, you don't realize until you read it how genuinely creepy it is. It does have these really chilling moments and these kinds of where you, along with Norman, get that shudder that nothing is what I thought. You know, things are moving that are not supposed to move. Things are speaking that are not supposed to speak. And I love the he who walks behind. Um, there's an illustration in the original magazine, Unknown Worlds publication, of Tansy just hollowed out this kind of shell and this, you know, looming dark entity just kind of swallowing her as it just follows her Ooh, through the town. I need to see that. Yeah, it's 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 beautiful. I was like one nice thing about working at a rare book library is that I can just like, oh, I'll just I'll just order up that original issue of Unknown Worlds and take a look at it. Um, so that <laughs> that is a nice thing to be able to do. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Um, I would like to find that. Um, but yeah, the contrast between you know sort of the the Doty comedy and this uh, fellow professors with their pipes saying these those women got you buffaloed there, Norman. Um, <laughs> And then uh, contrasted with the obsidian knife that cuts you and you can't stop bleeding. And then the trick and bag that she hasn't put together of the white editions, including my favorite thing, which is the, um, uh, the needle from a phonograph that has to specifically play uh, Scriabin's Ninth Sonata, the Black Mass, <laughs> which as he's doing it, he's like, why am I doing this? I could have just put the phonograph needle in the bag and nobody would have known the difference. I love how he's kind of slowly, you know, accepting these things, even sort of against his better judgment. So it's a great, it's, it's just a great, it's such a fun book because it has these moments, these lighthearted moments of fun and these moments of real scary darkness that I think you're right. This is why uh, it's been adapted so many times. Uh, the first one, Weird Woman from 1944, feels kind of like it marries the story to cat people a lot, right? They kind of uh, set up the Tansy character as being, you know, this simple girl from an island with all these traditions that he brings to America. So she's sort of uh, the Simone Simone type of character among these people. And they even bring Elizabeth Russell into it, who was in Cat People. And then uh, probably uh, the best one, probably, it's definitely the best one, right? Night of the Eagle, aka Burn Witch Burn, uh, the Sydney Hayer's film with Peter Weingard and Janet Blair uh, sort of marries it to curse the demon a lot where it's a lot more of the, the he which walks behind and the idea of this eagle in place of the demon kind of coming to life and attacking him. Uh, and it really becomes focuses more on the book's uh, horror section. And I think that Richard Matheson and Charles Beaumont were involved in writing that. So, so that one obviously is really good, but I don't think any of them have really captured the book as it is. And you already pointed out that, the goofiest one is the one that is the only one that even bothers doing the, the body switch at all. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and steal two, uh, one, a movie that was influenced by it from Kim Newman's nightmare movies. Uh, it's a movie called the brotherhood of the bell, which is directed by Paul Winco Wincos. And it's a non-supernatural thriller about uh, campus politics, where a fraternity whose members find success in all their endeavors uh, call upon Glenn Ford, who's, you know, now a, a top ranking professor to to do his favor which is to convince a fellow teacher to commit suicide so that he will free up the position that they want to put one of their people in uh, he refuses and then he has his uh, life ripped apart just like sailor does in, in the book so i bring that up because i just watched his follow-up film the mephisto waltz uh which i don't know if you've seen it but it's really good it's um ker jurgens is a satanist great casting there right away, but he possesses the body of frustrated pianist, Alan Alda. So when you put those movies together, 
It's so almost I, like you have a full conjure wife there. <laughs> I watched the Mephisto Waltz for the first time like two days ago. That's a weird coincidence. No and, yeah, I know. Uh, which I was recommended to me um, by someone on Twitter, actually. And um, I was like, how, how have I not seen this double movie? Uh, and yeah, it's, it's, it's really pretty good. I have not seen Brotherhood of the Bell, though, and I absolutely love Glenn Ford, so I will have to definitely check that out. Yeah, they're both good, but it's just funny how, you know, we got a non-supernatural one with all the college machinations, and then you've got the, the supernatural one with the body switching. It's like, I just read Conjure Wife and decided to make two movies out of one, uh, one book. Uh, anything else you have to say about Conjure Wife before we move on to Our Lady of Darkness? Not really. I, I, I do think it's you know, it's ripe for another treatment. I think it could, there could be a great contemporary version that could really bring out some of the brutal elements of modern day academia um, and build on some of the gender politics. It could be awesome. It, it, it's really a story that holds up pretty well. Um, so, yeah. I think you're right. I'd be curious to see what a modern version of this story would look like on screen. I think it's, like you said, there's a lot of elements that are still very relevant today. So the next book is Our Lady of Darkness. And once again, separated by 24 years uh, from Conjure Wife, but uh, very much sort of an apex of this idea that Liber wants to talk about, about modern life and ancient evil. And, uh, just a fascinating book a hard one to talk about i think because because it's hard to talk about wow i can't even like get that far into it uh it's just it's so uh it's so deep and there's so much going on and i'll just i'm just gonna go read the general plot and we'll try to uh uh, try to unwind it uh this is a book about Franz West, Weston, who is a widower and a recovering alcoholic. Uh, he's been obsessing over two books that he bought during his Hayes days that he purchased bound together. One of them is, here we go with the pronunciation, Megapolisomancy. Sounds good. <laughs> Close enough. Megapolis uh, um, Nancy, A New Science of Cities, which is written by Tybalt de Castries, who we later learned tried to destroy every copy, uh, and then an anonymous journal that details meetings with de Castries, which Weston rightly assumes to have been written by none other than Clark Ashton Smith. And it's shortly after finding these books that he pours over that he starts getting obsessed with this idea um, of ancient Egyptians only buried people in their pyramids and we are living in ours, right? The idea that modern cities, which tower over people um, with millions of tons of electrically charged copper and steel add to an unnatural influence on human minds and awaken paramental entities, which are dark forces brought forth by urban living. Um, So my first question is, is this the only book whose hero is a novelizer? (laughs) Have you ever read another one? Um, hmm. Gosh. Because I'm obsessed with novelizations. I'm really fascinated by, you know, taking a story and then translating it into like sort of your own words. Uh, It's something that I'm really into. So I just immediately love that this guy who's kind of coming off this alcoholic binge uh, is toiling in novelizations and sort of has this really interesting sort of approach to them where he'll think of like, I want my readers to really feel the experience of this. I've got this little thing I want to add into it that will make it more real. 
And then he'll have days where he'll say, nah, I'm not going to add that. That's yeah, I mean, not worth my time. <laughs> probably one of the best little details about this book is that he decides yeah i mean it's it's just it's so charming and this this book i think part of the reason why it's hard it's such an insider book i feel like i mean it's it's Super obviously insider. based on liber's own life i mean franz fritz same guy right he's talking about himself um and it's 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 a it's a right you know it's a book written for his other writer friends other writers of weird tales love this book but yeah he so he's writing this novelization of this kind of cheesy popular occult tv show and he decides that his readers need to know what a shredder really sounds like so he goes and borrows a shredder and this actually ends up becoming like an important plot point which i just like i yeah i don't know i don't know who else could like handle this and actually get away with it like that it that actually works um so yeah i i you Definitely, I cannot think of any other, not only like that you have a hero who writes novelizations, but it's just so meta, you know, the whole thing. Like, it's a, a book talking about a guy who writes books about TV shows, about, you know, like, it's it's really interesting. It is. And he actually lived at 8, 811 Geary Street in San Francisco for almost a decade. Uh, the setting of the book, the main setting of the book. And I guess this was a Sa- uh, San Francisco writer thing. I guess uh, Sam Spade's apartment building is the same as Nashville Hammett's actual uh, apartment address. Um, and of course, this guy is an avid collector of occult books, as Liber was said to have been. Uh, and he invokes uh, so many names, drop, name drops so many, uh, Lovecraft, M.R. James, Ambrose Bierce, Jack London, uh, Shemian Sh- London, George uh, Sterling, Nora May French, and even name drops himself at, at one point. That's um, right. I forgot about that. Which really kind of like sets this amazing structure for the story because this is a novel of stories, right? It's so much of the action told by characters rather than described by Liber. Uh, Francis' experiences with the Paramental are pretty much the only significant actions that we experience along with him. Um, but through other characters that we hear about, Cal playing Mozart, the mental institution, and the story of De Castries and his cult, um, Francis told there are, no, there are no such things as supernatural horror anymore, that science has solved or can solve mysteries, that modern people are too sophisticated and knowledgeable to be scared of ghosts, even for kicks. Um, these writers over the years, these people that he brings up have been building a structure with their stories, a kind of monument to weird fiction, uh, that their collective efforts become the centralized focus of the novel, right? It's fulcrum. The former hotel turned apartment building where France lives becomes the embodiment of this monument of stories and the narrative becomes how he interprets them, which is only fitting because he's a novelizer. He's somebody who hears a story and retranslates it. Uh, and like Conjure Wife, you know, it has such amazing insights into history, geology, astrology, art and music, mathematics, chess, the occult, witchcraft. Um, but the difference is, whereas I think Conjure Wife is a great novel, I think this one's a masterpiece uh, because it's not the kind of fun involving story of Conjure Wife, but it's much more internal and probably why it's never been adapted into a movie, uh, but something that's just so endlessly rewarding. Uh, I've never read these two books in close proximity to each other, uh, but now that I have, Conjure White just seems like a toy compared to this one. I think that's where you have the big 24-year separation. Um, the first building, blo- Conjure White was like the first building block, you know, in Liber's own stories of horror and magic in the modern world that formed this work. And so it really has that amazing kind of, again, apex sort of place in his uh, in his career. 
Yeah, I interestingly, I, I had never read them back to back, even though I, I have that combined edition. That's what I've always had until recently. And it, it they are, they're great read together because it almost does make Our Lady of Darkness even that much deeper because you realize like, whoa, you know, look, look at what... Look at what this guy can do. And part of the just absolute pleasure of reading Our Lady of Darkness is chasing the references. You know, as you said, I mean, there's weird fiction galore and then just, you know, music, art, all, you know, all of this, these ideas about the occult and about, because he, he is basing those on, you know, there is no real megalomancy or whatever. Like he made that word up, but that idea has been around. Um, and it's really fun. Every time he has like a list of texts, about half of them are real and half of them are made up. Um, and even if you're a real aficionado, you will find yourself like, you're like, wait a minute, is that one real? And you're like Googling it and you're like, damn, that sounds so interesting. I wish it was, but it's not. Um, <laughs> and that's, you know, I mean, that's something that Lovecraft did and Robert Block did, this kind of mixing of real books and made up books. Um, and this wonderful, just happy of ideas and it you know so ultimately well, I guess we should we haven't mentioned the the scholar's wife yet um, I was going to ask you if as a writer you have a scholar's wife or not of course I mean and anyone who not loves, on the bed probably but on a desk or you yes. know, on the floor anyone who loves books loves ideas will immediately know exactly what he's talking about so franz has because his wife daisy has died he you know is alone in his bed and on the other side of the bed where his wife used to be is this pile of books that he calls his scholar's wife and of course it's ever-changing depending on what he's reading and it's a mix of very serious texts there's pulps in there and he'll kind of trace his hands you know here is where her face would be and here is her thigh but it's this pile of books and ultimately at the end of the book it becomes animated into our lady of darkness and it's this whirling terrifying mass of paper and ink and leather bindings and pulp that comes to life but it's just such a resonant idea for people who love to read um it's really really beautiful it's great i'm glad none of his friends call him out on what's what's going on with you and your books man because it's <laughs> It's a weird relationship and it's, I don't know if I get it. Um, yeah, that stuff is all great. Um, I kind of find the dead wife, the one sort of hacky thing in the book only because, you know, it's like we have the alcoholism recovery already. And I know you're going to say, well, he's, you know, something had to influence that in the first place. He's, you know, a good guy. We don't want him to seem like just some weak uh, character. Um, but it's the one thing that every time it gets brought up, I just kind of think, uh yeah okay okay that's fine you know it doesn't doesn't hit me like the rest of it does well so yeah the thing is so his wife did die the jonquil died um she oh geez yeah yeah well, I she, probably should have <laughs> looked into well, that before saying anything but it is he he does treat it in a very kind of hackneyed way it is it, I, I actually agree that that is a weak spot in the book and it, it really doesn't do justice to jonquil and she died from an overdose um 
it's not clear whether it was intentional or not, but, you know, either way, it was incredibly tragic of Barbiturates. She had been very addicted for many, many years, as had he. They were addicts together. They, um, one of the things that, so we have a small collection of Lieber's papers at the Lilly Library, including just reams and reams and reams that he wrote while he was in AA. So it's self-analysis. And he's uh, analyzing his relationship with his wife and with his mother. And it's just very clear that they were um, enabling each other and that it was very, toxic relationship even though they loved each other and then she died and it was I mean he really hit bottom when she died but he also that's when he ended up ultimately recovering from his alcoholism so this was partly his reflecting back on that whole experience and I feel like I don't know maybe he felt like he had to write her in there in some way but yeah the dead wife just kind of hanging over everything in this weird way um I also think he was trying to work in, he was really interested in Robert Graves' idea of the triple goddess. And so Daisy, the wife, Our Lady of Darkness, right, the kind of paramental entity, and then Calpurnia, who is the young woman in his apartment that he is dating, kind of are this like triple goddess character together. Or, or he may have been going for something along those lines. I'm not quite sure it comes together. This um, all totally changes my perspective on it. <laughs> Um, you know, it seems such like a device, you know, in the book of, you know, oh, there's not really a, the wife isn't a character at all. She's just sort of, you know, someone who is worked into his backstory. Um, but that all obviously is pretty significant autobiographical stuff there. And it's, it's interesting that he, Franz does not marry Cal. Um, they are, and she's much younger than him. They end up staying in a relationship and they, I think, live I don't know if they live together, at least in the same apartment, but he deliberately does not marry her. So it's kind of like, especially read in, in partnership with Conjure Wife, he's kind of leaving behind this idea of the wife, right? He's not maybe expecting the woman to support him in that same way, even though it is Calpurnia who comes in and dispels Our Lady of Darkness with her, like, she has this, like, chant of rationalism where she invokes all of these great philosophers and um, musicians and kind of helps him defeat so there's still this idea of of this male female union but it's not in wife form so he is kind of like leaving that dead wife behind moving forward to maybe a more uh equal relationship hopefully in the future yeah, and also from Conjure Wife, this idea that the wife understands, or the, the wife, the, the female lead understands art and music in a way that the male characters don't, that she is u- able to use uh, the music that she plays to soothe the people at this uh, mental institution and ultimately by invoking the names of these artists to defeat the Lady of Darkness uh, and kind of use that against it, which of course plays into the whole idea of, you know, these stories that are uh, sanctiment at this point, you know, that they just reached this whole structure all on their own and have this power in and of themselves. Um, but also San Francisco as a setting in this is obviously very significant. And again, another kind of nice uh, trio of things being the Transamerica pyramid, the neat, recently erected Sutro TV tower and, uh, Corona Heights, right? The, the hill that he can see from his apartment. Um, 
and the constant blinking lights, the slender waisted and long legged, like a beautiful and stylish woman or demigoddess that he describes the TV tower. Uh, you're, these real things that you, that's the look, especially if you look at something like the trans America pyramid, like occult structures that have these very pointed sort of tops and just look like old cathedrals or old chapels. And you can see that Liber would have seen these things as something that could have their own power. And that someone like uh, DeCastres we learn would try to utilize to, amass an actual sort of uh satanic power himself but you'd mentioned that you know he works in all of these actual people with these fake people one of the funnier sequences is when they're describing how he tries to get everyone to gather around a fountain together and so you got like jack london drunk you know holding this uh some kind of a thing that you know some sort of a, a, a instrument to invoke this earthquake and then also i don't know jerry you know, there's some random guy who messes everything up uh, because he can't carry his balloon or whatever it is that the cast just sends him in with. Uh, so you have moments like that where it's like, it's funny to think of these real people being involved in practices like this and then kind of throwing in the obviously fictional character along with them. Uh, so it's not like this book isn't a lot of fun. It's just, it's also very, very prodding and very heavy in a lot of sequences, uh, like the chapters long sequence of um, talking about DeCastries, which is narrated by uh, Jaime Dondalus Byers, who he describes as Vincent Price's voice at his fruitiest, which is unfortunate way of describing it. But at the same time, I instantly get it. You know, like I got, I got that character's voice in my head immediately. Uh, who lives with his um, uh, his concubine Falo Sui, who is interest has an interesting sort of sex romare inspired S and M thing that she has going on. Um, but we spend so much time kind of delving into the history of this cult that he uh, describes. Uh, and it become it really becomes like you're reading a history of San Francisco at this point of actual people uh, alongside fictional ones. So it's very, very unique in that sense. Yeah. And I, I, I just really love the idea. I love writers who kind of, you know, rather than going with like, you know, the modern world is disenchanted and we've lost the magic of nature, blah, blah, blah. Um, the kind of find this like, intense magic in the very the new the man-made the artificial um i just i find that a very potent idea and i feel like anyone who's ever been like super creeped out in an underpass or something you know where you're like this is a weird sacred magical messed up place um will sort of get how even you know neon lights and um advertisements can have this kind of deep creepiness and heaviness to them and he describes that very well yeah i had forgotten about the vincent price character and his um <laughs> concubine they are great you know and i can only imagine we're probably based on some of liber's friends um it must have been <laughs> yeah he was known for he he was the son of, of of an actor and actress grew up you know in this kind of bohemian um early hollywood shakespearean theater world so he always hung out with eccentric and interesting people mm -hmm. 
Yeah, no, I mean, that's, you definitely feel that, like all the people, all the experiences of Libra's life are in this. And it's a very short book too. It's often I've seen uh, described as a novella, actually. Uh, I would call it a short novel. I think it's a little bit too long for that, but I, uh, it's definitely surprising how much he crams in there. We have another math problem in this one, A Curse Left by DeCastris in the hidden page of Smith's journal, which he refers to as the Pythagorean metageometry. <laughs> Um, so again, it's sort of translating this unknowable language using, you know, uh, modern things. And there's a terrific quote in there about, um, art being so unique because it's something that can only happen once, right? That it's something that, um, can only experience the one time as opposed to science, which is something that by principle can happen over and over again. Uh, I really like that. I really like the idea again, that, um, that art can be used kind of against the cold, inhumane sort of non-entity of city life. It's uh, something that, you know, works out well for the people in Conjure Wife uh, in their upstate New York or Connecticut, wherever they're supposed to be in that novel. And it works out well for the characters here, ultimately. Um, anything else about Our Lady of Darkness? Uh, again, it's such a difficult novel to, to talk about without getting really deep into, you know, its references and uh, uh, sort of the meta stuff that's in there. Yeah, and it's, I, I, I'm glad you pointed out that it's short um, because it, it, it feels so long. I, I reread it when I was writing this article on Conjure Wife because um, my editor was like, oh, hey, why don't you wrap up by mentioning Our Lady of Darkest? I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. I'll just, I'll reread that tonight. And then I'll breeze right through tomorrow. that, yeah. <laughs> and, like, it, I, had to, I had to keep going back to her and being like, actually, I'm going to need another day because it, it's it's a long read. And I mean, I, I mean that absolutely as a compliment in that it is, there's not a lot of, prose that you just kind of blow through there's not a lot of i think you mentioned like there's not a lot of action but it is really it's really rewarding and if you love weird fiction you will love this book it's kind of a love letter to the genre in a lot of ways yeah oh for sure and i and again just like conjure wife uh he effortlessly does action when it is there i mean the pale brown shape that he sees in his apartment his taffy you know oh yeah it's That's creepy uh, yeah it's creepy as hell it's like the um um the unknown man from lost highway you know saying he's at his apartment give me a call uh like he definitely knows how to do those horror things and then uh, you're like i can't wait to see what happens next and then it's going to be uh he's going to be running around researching the history of this building and uh you must you must disapprove steals a book from one of the uh reference uh, offices that he's yeah, supposed to don't do that <laughs> And I'm guessing it got destroyed with all the rest of them at the end. He'd never return that book. <laughs> uh, we disagree. We, we both disapprove of that for sure. Um, okay. Our Lady of Darkness, my dessert pick for this. Um, as you mentioned, uh, so many stories are referenced in this. There's uh, just to give a short list. It's almost like he's giving us a reading list after this and you want to just dive into it right afterwards. Uh, some of them that he mentions are A View from a Hill by M.R. James. As you said, The Great God Pan. Uh, Lovecraft's The Thing on the Doorstep, Smith's uh, dis the, uh, the Disinterment of Venus, uh, Jack London's Iron Heel and the Star Rover, uh, Satcher Massock and uh, Oscar Wilde. It's almost uh, like, you know, just an, <laughs> an inexhaustible source of great stuff to read after you've done this. So I, I decided to go against the instinct to recommend a book to go with this. I'm actually going to go with two films instead. Um, the first is Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 1978 version. Uh, of course, 
came out a year after this book was published and is set in San Francisco. Uh, you even see the Transamerica Pyramid building inside of the movie. Uh, and just another good example of great horror done in a city environment with these characters who are artists and bohemians and like, you know, just uh, kind of new age guys who are, don't seem to have a care in the world and just sort of very comfortable in where they are and how they're living. Uh, when something in the city starts to happen, uh, it's only the ones who are the most, you know, artistic and the most aware of, um, of great art and, and lifestyle who are going to start noticing that these um, pot people are taking over. Uh, Our Lady of Darkness actually has this great little moment uh, with a cab driver. And it makes me think of Don Siegel, the director of the original Invasion of Body Snatchers, having a cameo as a t- cab driver in uh, the remake. So he could totally fit into that if they ever did want to make, <laughs> you know, if they had wanted to make this movie back in 1978 when Don Siegel was still alive. And the other movie is... Um, takes from the same source as the opening quote of this, which is Thomas De Quincey's Suspiria de Profundis, right? Lavana and Our Ladies of Sorrow. Um, and specifically singles out Mater Tenebrum, the, the, the sister, the mother of darkness, uh, who is the subject of Dario Argento's film Inferno from 1980. Uh, beyond that, Inferno, which is set in New York rather than the West Coast, but definitely has that weird kind of tone of this book in terms of just something weirds going on something is coming after you but it is completely intangible uh it's completely phantasm i don't even think by the end we know exactly who's been murdering these people it's just you know argento i think at the beginning just like it's supernatural deal with it the same way that you know Liber has this deal with um these entities that we meet in this book and again it's uh, argento of course so again it's characters who are artists they're musicians and poets uh and we have an amazing scene in a library right the biblioteca angelica in rome one of the oldest public libraries in europe so there's that connection too um so those two those two movies inferno invasion of the body snatchers i think would be good ones to check out any old time but definitely after having Libra's uh thoughts in your head liber i know it's it's <laughs> it's very hard for me to switch um those are really good choices and i yeah if if our lady of darkness could be filmed i don't know if it could but i would i would definitely you know pick argento to take a stab at it oh wow yeah wouldn't that be amazing like, that would be something yeah because it, it does have that you, you would need somebody who was who would just be like just go with me on this. Like we're not, you know, we're not going to explain things. We're just going to feel them. Um, and yeah, that's a wonderful pairing. I, I mean, this is, it was hard to pick because yeah, my first instinct was also like, look at all of the texts that this cites. It, it leads so many places, but then I realized I, I have to pick, I must pick something by a woman. It's very important that I pick something by a woman um, to, to round out this conversation because these are both of these novels are so, um, there's so much about women and the feminine whatever that means, um, but so much from a male perspective. So for my dessert, I'm picking one um, that came out in 2018, but that I just read recently, which is the novel Circe by Madeline Miller, and is this incredible, incredible retelling of the Circe myth and many, many other myths from Circe's perspective. So both of these, uh, Conjure Wife and Our Lady of Darkness, are about, you know, one's about a witch wife, the other is about this kind of feminine... Um, 
entity. And so what Cersei does is give us the witch's story from the witch's perspective. And I mean, on the one hand, it just delighted the sort of child mythology nerd in me, you know, that I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that story. And um, she crosses paths with so many other characters. And most of it takes place with her confined. She's exiled by her Titan father on an island, um, which, of course, is where we find her in the Odyssey. And so it's amazing how much Miller is able to do with this one character alone on an island. And it gets into a really interesting perspective of witchcraft. And it, as it just being kind of really hard work and experimentation and learning on your own. So I definitely, you know, would recommend any, any ventures into Liberland be paired with some other uh, perspectives um, from women writers, which like of all the writers he cites in Our Lady of Darkness, I don't know if he cites any women. Uh, if he does, it's not, it's not many. They're all obscure ones. Uh, yeah. The poet, the po- I had to look him up actually. <laughs> he even names one who he says it was a feminist writer. Uh, he doesn't give her first name. Uh, Bellamond or something like that. I tried look googling it and I could not find anything. So I don't even know who he's talking about. If that was a real person, but he uh, he says it like everyone should know who it is. Um, but you're right; it's, it's definitely heavily male. And I guess weird fiction. Even though, um, would you consider Frankenstein part of weird fiction or the formation of weird fiction? I'm thinking it was a very male heavy sort of uh, genre for a long time in the early 20s. Oh yeah, I mean. I- I think there are there are plenty of women who have written weird fiction from the beginning. They're just often not uh, as well known, not as anthologized. I mean, we're getting a lot more. There's a great. I just I have it on my desk next to me right now. A volume that just came out from Valancourt, the Women of Weird Tales, um, that publishes some of the lesser known women writers from Weird Tales. I've just been doing a little bit of research um, for another talk on C.L. Moore, um, who was one of the great writers of Weird Tales, um, and then ended up kind of getting somewhat subsumed in her husband's legacy um, as well. But yeah, I think they're they're definitely out there. Uh, another one I considered for a dessert is um, uh, Bride of Darkness by Marjorie Lawrence, which is a 1967 novel. I didn't include it just because it's it's hard to find. It's out of print. Um, but if you can track down a copy, it's a, it's a great pairing with Conjure Wife because it's about a witch wife, but one who is really, really, really really evil um and it also has a glass hummingbird sculpture that comes to life and pecks someone to death which like i don't know why you wouldn't want to read that Uh, so that's a good one too so yeah i mean and i i think there's a lot more scholarship coming out now there's been some great um a couple new anthologies on weird women actually there's one that just came out um edited by leslie klinger and then a couple others edited um oh my gosh i'm gonna have to uh look up her name because she's so good melissa edmondson um has two volumes of weird women um sort of recovering a lot of these lost classics that have been forgotten that's great. Now, I definitely want to check out a lot of those. And while I recognize, you know, Liber's 
a unique perspective into femininity in both of these books and, you know, a rare sort of glance into femininity. I have to say just some of the stuff that I've learned from you, uh, just talking to you have really made me appreciate it even more. And I'm guessing a lot of this stuff will appear in your um, uh, Hellebore article as well. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a super short little piece. So you, you got here actually some of the stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor from that article. So (laughs) it was nice to have a place to put it to use. Excellent. We benefited from that as well, Ben. <laughs> Thanks, Hellebor. Um, Rebecca, thank you so much. This was a great talk. Uh, these are great books to revisit uh, and a great writer to talk about. Um, our next book is going to be Deep Water by Patricia Highsmith, which uh, is going to be a new movie at some point. We don't know when, but uh, a new film that they have just, uh, it's one of her new adaptations of the ongoing Highsmith Hollywood fixation. Uh, so we're going to be revisiting that on our constant uh, uh, trek to get to every single Patricia Highsmith book at some point. Um, Rebecca, thank you again. Uh, everybody, have a wonderful night. Thank you. Thank you.